kids up through fifth grade, you're dismissed to go to your classrooms. For the rest of you, please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Judges, chapter 4. Judges chapter 4. Man, I love that song. love that message from Revelation chapter 5. He is worthy to open the scroll. Every people and tribe, every nation and tongue worshiping around the throne. Praise God for that. It's one of those Sundays I don't necessarily feel like I need to preach a sermon after that time of worship, but uh, I have one right here, so I might as well preach it. But so thankful for that. Also thankful uh, just for all those who are serving our church. Um, just love, love the ways that you're using our, your gifts to serve our body. So thank you so much. All right, well, like I said, we're going to be in Judges chapter 4 this morning. Chapters 4 and 5, but actually most of our time we spent in chapter 4. So hopefully you're turned there with me. Let's go before the Lord and let's ask him to help us. Then we'll jump into the text. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God. Jesus is worthy. No one else is worthy. Worldwide search, universe-wide search in heaven, on the earth, and under the earth, looking for someone who was worthy to open the scroll. No one was, but there was the lamb standing as though he had been slain. He is worthy to take the scroll and to open it. So, Lord, may we live our lives in worship of that lamb standing as though he had been slain. God, I help, pray that you would uh, just help us as we look to your word in Judges chapter 4 this morning. God, make it alive to us by the Spirit. If it wasn't for the Spirit, this would just be another book. But it's not just another book. It is the living and abiding word of God. It's living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces the division soul and spirit of bone and marrow. It cuts us right to the heart, God. So help it cut us right to the heart and convict us of any sin in our lives. May we be convicted and encouraged in the word, God, to continue on in Christ-likeness and faithfulness to you and following the faithful one. Jesus Christ. So help us with that this morning. Lord, help me as I speak. Just guard my mouth, my tongue. May you be honored in all that is said this morning. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've learned uh, many things parenting a four-year-old, but one thing I've experienced in a new way kind of recently is the incessant why questions that happen over and over and over again. It's like when a kid has a question in their mind, they cannot focus on anything else until they have that question answered. And then as soon as that question's answered, what do they do? They move on to another question that they have. Right? My, uh, so I'm a, a coaching Owen's four- and five-year-old t-ball team, and so I was talking to my dad about this, and he reminded me of the time when he was coaching my preschool soccer team, and uh, he was, uh, it was uh, our first game, and we were all excited, you know, we're all, you know, in our little shin pads and soccer cleats and just kind of, you know, waddle out onto the field excited to, to play. And so my dad has the whole team together, and the way he tells it, he's given the pregame speech of his life, right? Like he's firing us up, he's getting us ready and reminding us, you kick the ball into the goal, and we're going to score, and we're going to, you know, score more than the other team, and, and you've got to run as fast as you can, you've got to play hard. And he's like, we're he's getting us all fired up, right, and, and ready to go. And at the end of the speech, one little boy uh, named Brig Olson.
Dustin was my friend at the time, and Brig raised his hand, and dad said, yeah, and he looked up at my dad. He's kneeling down. He's, look, he's kind of right under my dad. He said, why do you have so much hair in your nose? <laughs> Couldn't think of anything else as soon as the question, wait a second, why does he have hair in his nose, right? Couldn't concentrate because he needed to know why. And like I said, I'm seeing that certainly in the phase of life we're in. But you know what? Let's be honest. I don't think we ever really grow out of that phase of life, do we? We always want to know why. Especially when it comes to our relationship with God. God, why? Why are you having me go through this right now, God? Why is life so hard for me in this moment? I don't want it to be, God. Why is it so difficult? Why are you doing this right now, God? And the truth is, sometimes we get the answers to those questions, and other times we don't. We don't always know the answer why. And when you're a parent and you're dealing with the questions why over and over and over and over and over again, what do you do? You do the thing, you say the thing that you swore you'd never say because you hated it when your parents said this thing, but then you always fall back into it. What do you say? Four words. Because I said so. Right? And God doesn't say because I said so. He tells us that he works all things for his glory and our good. His glory and our good. And we got to trust that. It takes faith to believe that sometimes, doesn't it? When you don't know the answer why, believing that God works all things for his glory and our good. Another way to say it is simply that God always wins. In God's plans, in God's purposes, in the things that he wants to accomplish in the world, and in the things that he wants to accomplish in your heart, that he doesn't, you don't even know what those things are. But in God's plans and purposes, God always wins. He's always victorious, and we never have to fear and praise the Lord for that. And that's what we're going to see in our story this morning. We're just simply going to see that God always wins. There's going to be a lot of questions that are left unanswered in our story. A lot of things that we're going to see in this story. And we're going to say, why in the world did you choose to have it work out like that? God, and we won't always know the answer, but what we're going to see throughout this story is God's sovereign hand all the way through it. He is completely in control of every single event that happens, both big and small, and he works all those things together for his glory and for our good because he always Wins. And so that's what we're going to see this morning as we jump into Judges chapters 4 and 5. When we left off last week, we need to remember Israel had been saved by Ehud, the left-handed assassin, that really gross story when he stabbed King Eglon in the belly and the sword just went whoop right into his stomach and swallowed it all up. Sorry to remind you of that. Um, but uh, that, and, and Israel was saved because God was kind of working in those details. So we saw that story of Ehud and then the story of Shamgar, and Shamgar got kind of ripped off because he only got one sentence even though he killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad and saved Israel. So that's all we know about Shamgar, but we see that as well. And we see that after those things happen, there's peace in the land and there's rest and all things are going well for Israel. And what we like desperately want to say, see every time as we read the book of Judges, like we're like longing for these words like, and they all lived happily ever after. 
and nothing else bad happened. And they didn't disobey God anymore. But is that going to happen? Nope. What's the word that we need to remember when we think of the book of Judges? Cycle. Nice job, everybody. Cycle. It is a cycle of sin and rebellion. Rebellion, repentance, and then it all repeats. And so this morning, once again, we're going to see that cycle. So look with me. We're going to see the exact same things happening. Look with me at verse, or chapter 4, verse 1. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. Here we go again. Ehud dies and the peace in the land is no more because Israel is rebellious and they chase after false gods. That's that, that phrase, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. It means they're worshiping the idols, worshiping the false gods. So the first step in this cycle is disobedience. Israel disobeys. So what comes next is God's discipline. It's the same thing we've seen before. God's discipline. Verse 2. The Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Side note about the, uh, the slideshow this week is there's a lot of characters, so I thought rather than put my like, points on the screen, we'd put the characters on the screen so we can kind of keep them all straight and remember who they are. So the Lord, as part of his discipline, sells Israel into the hand of Jabin, who is the king of Canaan. God allows him to be conquered by another king. This is his discipline, which reminds us that Israel's being disobedient, and yet God still has not forgotten his People. Verse, or continuing on verse 2, the commander of his army, of, of Jabin's army, was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hagoyim. Now last week, my uh, grandma was watching on the live stream from Georgia, and she saw me struggling with some of these names, and so she sent me a biblical name pronunciation guide, and so I really, so thank you, grandma, if you're watching this week, we'll see if I can do a better job, I really appreciated that. Uh, so we'll see if, if it goes any better this week. I don't have too high hopes. But uh, anyways, uh, so the commander of his army was Sisera. So he's the Canaanite commander who lived in Herosheth Hagoyim. Verse 3, then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. For he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years for 20 years yeah so apparently uh iron chariots back then were like the most powerful weapon of warfare that existed so if you had a an iron chariot uh you were going to be able to cut through it didn't matter how many people were coming after you because you could just cut through them like butter and so they had not only a, a handful of these iron chariots they had 900 of them so what this if we were alive at the time we would see this and our eyes would get about this big because we'd say there's no way anybody's going to do anything against 900 iron chariot. So Israel is being oppressed by this extremely powerful army. And so they cry out to the Lord. Again, we see this cycle here. They cried out to the Lord. Verse 4. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. So we have our disobedience, we have our discipline, and now we see the Lord raising up a deliverer. And actually, we're going to see multiple deliverers raised up. So in every story from here on out, there's going to be the same structure, but the details will be a little bit different. So rather than one deliverer like Othniel and Ehud and Shamgar, now we're going to see actually multiple people that God raises up. 
up. And the first one is this prophetess named Deborah. Now, this is good news. Like, we should see this as good news, just the fact that there is a prophetess in Israel. God gave the people of Israel, in order to, like, help them, like, with everyday life, with living their life, he gave three different kind of government offices, if you will. There was the office of prophet, and the office of priest, and the office of king. Now, the people of Israel had not yet uh, called a king to rule over them, but the king's job was to rule over the people and make sure that they were following God's law. There's no king at all. The priests' jobs were to mediate between God and the people to make atonement for their sin. We've not seen the priests anywhere in Judges. They've been just completely MIA. But this time we see that God at least has a prophet, a prophetess, a female prophet in Israel that he is using to to give messages to the people. And so she would sit under the palm of Deborah, that's what they called it because that was her name, and people would come up to her and they would kind of ask her advice on things and according to God's will, God's word, she would speak judgment to them. So this is good news that God has raised up a prophet. All that to say is that at the very, our first sermon in Judges, I told you that Judges is kind of like a line graph that kind of goes up and down, but it trends down. So it starts up here and then kind of goes down. And so when we get to the end of Judges, there's going to be no sign of God's activity whatsoever. We're just going to say, where in the world is God? But here we still have like flashes of God working among the people. And so he has a prophet named Deborah that he has raised up to speak to the people. And she has a specific message for somebody named Barak on behalf of God. So verse 6, let's see what that message is. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinom, from Kedesh Nephtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Nephtali and the people of Zebulun. Those are two tribes. So go take 10,000 men from these two tribes and go to Mount uh, Tabor. Bring them all together. That's what you're supposed to do. So here's a message. This is what Barak is supposed to do. And then God says, this is what I'm going to do. You do your half of the bargain. I'll do my half of the bargain. What's God's half of the bargain? Verse 7, I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river, river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. So God makes a promise to Barak that he's going to deliver Sisera into Barak's hand. That Barak will be victorious. And he's given him not only a promise. He doesn't just say, get these men and you'll be victorious. He actually gives them he's like specific details of what exactly is going to happen. You go get these guys and then I'm going to meet you specifically by this river with uh, Sisera and all of his troops. And when that happens, they will be defeated. This is like a very specific promise that God gives to Barak. And so let's look at what Barak's response is to that promise. We have to think about how did Barak respond to this promise that God made through Deborah. Verse 8. Barak said to her, to Deborah, if you, Deborah, will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. So God makes this very specific promise that Israel is going to be victorious and Barak's response to Deborah is, if you go, I'll go. If you don't go, I'm not going to go. 
I'm going to let you in kind of behind the scenes of preaching prep a little bit here because especially when you, I mean, it's always when, you, when you're preaching, you're applying God's word to our hearts. So we're not just looking at what it says and what it means, but we're also looking at how it applies to our lives. And so especially as kind of you go through like these Old Testament stories, you're looking for these moments that are going to preach, right? That are going to like, how are we going to, like, where are we going to apply this text? And so as I'm reading and studying this, I read verse 8 and I think, boy, what a cowardly response from Barak. Barak, right? Like God promises he's going to win, and what is Barak's response is, I'm not going to go unless you go with me, right? Like you see like this cowardly response to him, and it's like, okay, well that'll preach. Like how do we respond to God's call to us? And so I'm kind of reading, I have a handful of commentators that I read uh, as I'm studying, and a couple of them kind of said that same thing, but then I read another commentator, and he takes it as the exact opposite, So he says, rather than being cowardice, this is actually Barak showing incredible faith because Deborah is a representative of God, of Yahweh. She is God's representative, and Barak's saying, I'm not going to go unless God's representative is with me. Like, I'm not going to do anything if God himself is not, like, with me. And I thought, oh, shoot. I was just getting ready to preach about his cowardice, and now he might not be a coward. So what am I going to do about that? I'm going to do something weird. I'm going to preach it both ways, okay? So two points, and they exactly contradict each other. This doesn't happen very often. Point number one, don't be like Barak, okay? If Barak is being a coward, don't be like that. Don't do that. If God calls you to do something, do it. Don't delay. Don't wait. If God is calling you to do something, you need to do it. How often are we slowed down, not because we don't have a call from God, but because we're afraid to follow through on the call that he has given us? I shudder to think about how many opportunities I've squandered to be used by God in my life, not because I didn't know what he wanted me to do, but because I was too stinking afraid to do it. Maybe it's just me. I think I've shared this story before, but I'm going to share it again because it really makes me look like a bozo, and sometimes you need to hear uh, that uh, I can be a real bozo sometimes. I think I've shared this story, but there was a time when I was in the airport waiting to get on a plane, and um, this guy came and sat down right next to me. We were, like, waiting for them to call our boarding or, like, Group C or whatever, and so we're waiting for them to call us, and he, this guy just starts talking and talking and talking and talking and talking and talking, and just one of those people, and if I hadn't been sitting there, he might have still been talking you, you get my drift. And um, so he's saying all these things and all these terrible things he's going through in his life. And I feel this conviction of the Lord like, Mike, I want you to pray for this guy. Ask him if you can pray for him and then pray for him right here. And I said, God, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. And so this guy talking, talking, talking. And eventually he just kind of gets up and leaves. And he's going standing in line and say, all right, Lord, see, I didn't have time to pray for him. Like I didn't, I'm like negotiating with God. I didn't have time. But if he comes back and sits next to me, then I'll pray for him. And guess what? He came back and sat next to me. And guess what I didn't do? Pray for him. I didn't do it. Pastor Mike, you bozo. He shouldn't have even come back. He was like in line to get on the plane. And then he came and he sat and the Lord couldn't have made it any more clear. And I was so disobedient in that moment. And I felt like about this big. 
And uh, so I got on the plane, and then another guy, I, I thought, if I'm sitting next to this guy on the plane, then I'm like, really? But I wasn't sitting next to that guy, but I was sitting next to another guy, and that guy started talking to me, and I thought, okay, this guy's getting the gospel. And I, shared, I did share the gospel with him for most of the plane ride, but it was only because I felt so stinking guilty about being so disobedient to what God had just called me to do, and I felt just about this big. And the point is, like, if the Lord is calling you to do something, just do it already. Just be obedient. You might not know why. Like, what was I even afraid? of. I didn't even know anyone in the airport. Like, was they, were they going to think that I was weird or something? Good grief, right? God's calling you to do something. You need to do it. Don't be like Barack. Don't be a coward, if in fact he is being a coward. So point number one, don't be like Barack. Point number two, be like Barack. If we take it the other way, right? If we take it as he's actually not being a coward, but he's saying, Lord, I'm not going to move forward unless I know 100% that you are there with me. I cannot move without your blessing, God. And how often are we afraid to move when God's calling us? That's one thing that we fail in, but we also can fail in the exact opposite. And like we just go without seeking the Lord, right? Without seeking his blessing. How many like major life decisions, like be honest with yourself, have you made without going before the Lord in prayer and asking him to bless it and say, Lord, are you sure? Is this really what you want me to do? Man, I think we have a tendency to just run out in front of God sometimes. I remember one, another specific time when I failed at this was right when I graduated from college and I was applying for jobs and there was like this specific job that I just knew, this is a job I want, this is a job, like I'm, like I'm putting all my eggs in this basket and I remember like thinking to myself, I don't even want to pray about this because I don't want, I'm not even willing to hear if the Lord's answer is no. Like that's how like tied I was to it. May we not be so tied to our own desires, to our things that we think we want, our things that we think we need, the things that we think we need to do, that we don't just like put all of our whole lives in front of the Lord and say, Lord, I'm not moving unless you are right there with me. And so if that's what Barak is doing, then good grief, let us be like Barak. Amen? We need to seek the Lord's calling in all that we do. Either way, we don't know. I don't have a good answer. But back to our story. Deborah tells Barak, God's calling him to defeat Sisera. Barak says, all right, I'll go if you go with me. Verse 9. She said, Deborah, I'll surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you're going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kedesh. In other words, she says, I'll go with you, but just so you know, just so we're all clear on what's about to happen here, so the Lord's telling me, like, you're not going to get the credit for any of this because a woman is going to be the one who defeats Sisera. Now, maybe Deborah thought it was her. I don't know. But that was the message from the Lord. And the fact that she said that might give evidence to the fact that he was being a coward and now he's being disciplined. But again, we just don't know. But that's, we need to tuck, this is like foreshadowing. It's classic foreshadowing. We have a couple of moments of foreshadowing in the story. This is one of them. We're going to be successful. God will give them over into your hand. But guess what? A woman's going to get all the credit. Okay. We'll see what happens next. Verse 10. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kedesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. 
Okay, so this, if this is like the movie version of the story, then this is like the scene in Braveheart when all, uh, they're all like getting ready to go to battle and they're all getting fired up. You see all the people gathering. The battle, like they're on both sides and like the battle's about to start and the men are just like ready to go. So we are raring to go to battle. Like that's the scene that we're seeing right now if we're watching the movie. And then the director of this movie makes a strange decision because verse 11 is a jump cut to something else in cut entirely different. Look at verse 11. Now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zananim, which is near Kadesh. All right, so we have like guys raring to go for battle, and now we jump to a new scene, and it's a, a guy who's moving. He's like packing up his U-Haul, and he's just like moving away. Okay? We don't know why that is there at this moment. It has nothing to do with anything else that has been happening in our story so far. It's just a guy packing up his stuff and moving away. And so that's uh, what we have. And then verse 12 jumps right back into the battle scene, okay? So we have like gearing, ready, gearing up for battle. This guy's moving. And now we're back into the battle, verse 12. So now jump back into the battle with me. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinom, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, the whole shebang. He's calling out everybody and all the men who were with him from Herosheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. I know it's easy to get lost in some of these like ancient names and places, but uh, what we need to see from this is that what God said was going to happen in verse 7 has exactly happened. God said, all of these people, the whole army is going to gather up right here at this river. And guess what? The whole army gathers up together at the river. Funny how that works, huh? God says something, then it happens. God's promises always come true. Don't forget that, friends, that God's promises always come true. Be encouraged by that this morning. God said it's going to happen, and then it happened, and now finally we're ready for battle. So verse 14 is the climax of the story. Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. Verse 15, I love this. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Herosheth Hagoyim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. How did it happen? God did it. The Lord routed Sisera. But how did he do it? Like, how, like how did it happen? Like, what are the mechanics of it? Well, we have not yet talked about chapter 5 of Judges. Chapter 5 is unique in Judges because it's actually like this song of praise for what God did in chapter 4. So chapter 4 is the history, chapter 5 is the poetry. Chapter 5 is a song of response praising God for what he did in defeating Sisera and delivering Israel. And we actually get some more details in chapter 5. And the best, from what we can best see... It seems like the moment that Sisera's army got to this river like God promised they would, guess what happened? A massive rainstorm came, and all 900 chariots got stuck in the mud. So I guess having 900 chariots is an unstoppable war machine unless it rains, and then you're in trouble. 
What a coincidence, huh? That that rainstorm happened just at the very moment that Sisera's entire army was going to be exactly where God said they would be. Good thing that that happened to be the weather that day, huh? There's no coincidences in God's economy, are there? It's how God orchestrated it. He orchestrated they're going to be right there in this place that's susceptible to flooding. I'm going to send some rain, and their chariots are going to get stuck, and at that point, they're just sitting ducks, and these 10,000 men of Israel destroy the army. There's no coincidences, and yet it's easy to explain away the work of the Lord as a coincidence sometimes, isn't it? It's easy to, I mean, I was doing that in that story in the airport. It was just a coincidence that he happened to come and sit back by me. No, it wasn't. It was the Lord. God orchestrated it that way. And it's easy to explain away the things that happen in our lives as just coincidences. And we rob God of the glory that he deserves because he works in every minute, every detail, all of the minutia of your life. He's working in all of it. And we cannot explain it away because that's God at work. Now, can we take this too far? Maybe, like, I met some people who kind of only relate to God in these coincidences. Like, that's all they're ever looking for is just, like, these little coincidences that show them that God is there when God has given them, like, his entire word to show them that he's there. And so we can certainly take it too far in one way, but we can also take it too far in the other way and just kind of explain all those things away when that's God at work. God moves in the tiniest details of your lives. We need to be on the lookout for that work that he's doing. There are no coincidences in God's world. Let's be on the lookout for those things. Let's give him glory when we see him working. All right, well, let's sum up our story so far because it's basically the entire cycle. We've basically seen it all. Israel disobeys. They chase after false gods. God punishes them by sending an army to defeat them. Israel cries out to God. God raises up two deliverers this time, Deborah and Barak, and they defeat this army, and God delivers them. So we're basically there. Like, this is basically the whole story, except there was one tiny detail that still needs to be taken care of. If you were paying close attention when I read it a bit ago, you'll, you'll remember that Sisera got away on foot. He ran away. His whole army, everyone was dead, and this general got away on foot. I think that's displaying a little bit of cowardice on his part, that he's running away and leaving his men behind. But we need to know what happens with Sisera, and we need to know why this guy moved. Why did we have that detail back in verse 11? That was weird. Well, we're about to find out. So look with me at verse 17. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. Okay, starting to make a little bit more sense, right? God's there, Heber and his wife moved. wasn't just a coincidence. They moved pretty close to the battle site. So Sisera's running away, and this is a guy that it says had peace with Jabin, the king of Canaan. And so Sisera's running away. He sees the house of Heber, and he sees Jael's wife out front with a tent and says, All right, these are our friends. This is safety for me. This is my refuge. I'm going to be saved. So what does he do? Verse 18. Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord. Turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. Come on in. Come on in. You don't have to be afraid, she says. So he turned aside to her in the tent. She covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So what does she do? She opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. 
He asked for water. Why did he give her milk? Why did she give him milk? Well, make him sleepy, right? Wanted him to be sleepy. She had a plan in her mind. And this is where the whole story comes together. Because you remember, Deborah told Barak that Barak wasn't going to get the glory for defeating Sisera. It was going to be a woman. Well, guess what happens next? Verse 20. He said to her, he's laying down under his little rug with his little glass of milk. Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you if anyone here, say, no. If anyone's looking for me, tell him I'm not here, please. I'm going to take a little nap. So he falls asleep. And then this is where it gets hardcore, because this is Judges. So just be warned. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg, took a hammer in her hand. She went softly, quietly to him, and... Drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground when he was lying fast asleep from weariness. Good grief, Jail. Whoa. That's hardcore. She didn't uh, go and ask for anyone else's help. She took matters into her own hands. Women at that time were in charge of putting up the tents, and so these were instruments that she would have been very familiar with. So she just takes a tent peg and bloop, 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 all the way down. And uh, his head staked to the ground. And then we have three, uh, there's no unnecessary words in the Bible, but these are close, the next three words. So he died. <laughs> okay, that, yeah, I figured, but thank you for just making that super clear for us. We get it now. Verse 22, behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, so Sisera had run away, gotten to jail's tent. Barak's chasing that hard after Sisera. Jail went out to meet him and said to him, Come and I will show you the man whom you're seeking. So, okay, he's probably thinking he's going to have to kill him at this point, but uh, dirty work had already been done. He went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with a tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. People had been delivered, finally, fully and completely. And then chapter 5, like I said, is a song of praise to God for defeating Sisera's army, delivering Israel. And we learn at the end of chapter 5, the land had rest for 40 years. And the cycle is now complete. What we see in the story, we have a lot of questions. We don't know why it needed to happen that way with jail and the tent peg. We don't even really know why, what she had against Sisera or why she felt like she was on Israel's side because there was peace between Jabin and Heber's household, it says. So they were not enemies. Sisera felt comfortable taking refuge in jail's house and she lulled him to sleep and killed him with a tent peg. Why'd God do it like that? We don't know. We're not sure. What do we know? That God always wins. God always wins. We're just seeing the Lord so far in Judges work in unexpected ways through unexpected people, whether it's a left-handed assassin, whether it's a prophetess, whether it is the wife of a man who's friends with the king. God works in unexpected ways through unexpected people to accomplish his plan. And it's just so clear in the way that God works that it's just him. It's just him. He deserves the glory. And so the response of the people, which we see in chapter 5, was worship. Was worship. God works in unexpected ways, and he deserves to be worshipped. And guess what? God worked in an unexpected way in sending his son as well. And so our response must be worship. God sent 
the Messiah in a way that nobody could have expected. Even reading the Old Testament, people who knew the scriptures didn't expect him to come like he did as a baby born in a manger, somebody from Nazareth of all places. Nothing good comes from Nazareth. He rode in on a donkey in his most triumphant moments, right? The time when Israel is expecting him to come in and defeat the military powers above them of Romans. He comes in riding on a donkey. And then five days later, he's hanging on the cross. Israel's deliverer has died. And you'd be asking in that moment, why are you doing this, God? Why are you working in this way? But God's ways are different than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Because that wasn't the end of the story on Friday. On Sunday, he rose again. Because God always wins. When he rose again, he made us the people of God. He made it clear he is not just the, save, uh, the, the Savior of Israel. He is the Savior of the world. And now Jews and Gentiles have been made into one man. And as I look at your faces this morning, I'm looking at the faces of eternal beings. People who are made in the image of God who are going to live forever Because you're in God's kingdom. You're his people. You've been adopted into his family as sons and daughters because of the unexpected work of God on the cross. And now we're called to live our lives in unexpected ways as well. That's what Jesus calls us to do. To turn the other cheek. To give generously and sacrificially. To put others before ourselves. Because Jesus lived his life in an unexpected way. We're called to do so as well. And when we do that, we demonstrate that God always wins because he's already won. Because the victory has already been won. Satan has been defeated. And soon he will be bound forever and ever and ever. And we will live together as a people of God. And church, if that doesn't cause you to respond and worship, then I don't know what will. That's what we're called to do, is to live our lives in response and worship. That's our takeaway this morning. It's a pretty simple one. I'm not even really going to preach it. I just want us to do it. I just want us to be a people who respond in worship. We're going to respond in song and worship in just a few moments. I want us to be a people who live our lives in response in worship of the king who saved us who delivered us because we kept diving back into that cycle of sin rather than leaving us there there was a discipline that needed to be given but you know who he gave that discipline to it wasn't to us it was to his son to pay the penalty for our sin so that we could be delivered And when Jesus returns, the cycle will be complete and we will live forever in peace and love, the eternal kingdom and the new heavens and new earth. Praise the Lord for that. Amen. Is our God not awesome? Amen. Amen. He is good. He always wins. And so if you're in one of these places in life, we all go through these kind of times of these, our own cycles. And if you're in one of these cycles where it's just the dark point right now, you don't see it, you don't see him moving, you don't see him working, and you don't know why he's doing what he's doing, I just want you to take encouragement by these words this morning that God always wins. We have the privilege of worshiping and serving a God who has already won. Amen?
Amen. Let's pray.